0: What has been up with my luck lately? If there's a Venn diagram for having an immuno disorder in the middle of a respiratory pandemic while also having a child in daycare, I am right in the center of it. But hey, my voice is back and I'm on a bunch of day quill, so buckle up. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is episode 430, is it good to be king? This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcasts.com for about the price of a bag of cough drops per month. And thank you very much to Roger, Jenny, and Karen for signing up already. We've been spending a lot of time with England lately. And there's a good reason for that. England was the main target of the Norman invasion, and everything changed for the kingdom when William arrived. Furthermore, the nature of our sources is that they were more likely to survive if they were Norman sources. So I was able to give details on the conquest and the many rebellions against it because I finally had some details to give. And ultimately, this attention on Norman affairs becomes attention on English affairs, and this bias in the record snowballs as time goes on, and England goes on to have an outsized impact upon the world stage. It is, and it will be, impossible to fully escape the gravity well of England as it relates to the other kingdoms of Britain. But there are other kingdoms. Scotland is its own land with its own stories, and so is Wales. And the story of Wales in the late 11th century is, well, honestly, it's really rough, both in what was happening, but also in attempting to craft a clear narrative. The nature of our records and the number of dynasties and kingdoms and the number of blind spots means that the story of Wales during this period is almost impossible to parse. Even if I spent years just doing this period of Welsh history, I'm not sure I could do it justice. It's just too knotted. So instead, I'm going to take you through the story of one figure. This is not the whole story of Wales in the late 11th century, but it is as good of an example as any as to how messy and difficult the Welsh situation was at this time. It's a story about a man named Caradog ap Gruffith, meaning Caradog, son of Gruffith. Now, right at the outset, I should tell you that there were a lot of Gruffiths in Wales during this period. And Caradog's dad was the Gruffith who was the king of Gwent and Dehybarth. And this King Gruffith had a successful reign, and for years he managed to hold off multiple Viking attacks, as well as attacks by his Welsh neighbors. Until about 1055, when another King Gruffith, King Gruffith of Gwyneth, came along with an army and killed him. And then he annexed Gwent into Hybarth. Now that King Gruffith was soon known as King Gruffith of all of Wales, the Gruffith you're already familiar with. And the rise of that Gruffith through the death of this other Gruffith really cheesed off the late Gruffith's son, Caradog. I mean, no one likes it when someone comes in and kills your dad and steals your inheritance. Though, young Caradog wasn't entirely destitute in the aftermath of this. He was allowed to retain his family's estate at Caerleon. And it appears he began to exert his authority in the surrounding territory as a lesser lord, which was better than nothing, but was also far from what he would have gotten under normal circumstances. But Wales was being unified. And that meant there could only be one king in Wales, King Gruffith of Wales. So Caradog would have to be satisfied with Carleon, which was a dramatic reversal of fortune for him. But at the same time, while this was bad for Caradog, it was an opportunity for Wales to finally move beyond internal dynastic struggles and towards collective goals. It was a chance to be on a more even footing with their English neighbors across the border. Who had already unified. Though, as you no doubt have noticed, not everyone was holding hands and singing Kumbaya here. this unification process wasn’t exactly an enlightened one. King Gruffith became the first king of Wales through a tremendous amount of dynastic and political violence. And unification was a new experience for Wales. Furthermore, even if people were on board with this idea, not everyone was on board with the idea that this newly unified kingdom should be led by Gruffith and his dynasty. After all, Wales was already an ancient society full of ancient dynasties, and all of them had their own equally ancient grudges. And thanks to King Gruffith's actions, they had some new grudges too. So this wasn't going to be easy. And yet, in this moment... Wales had an opportunity to go towards something larger and more collective. It was an opportunity they never had before. And then the English invaded. And King Gruffith was assassinated. And during that campaign, Harold Godwinson had carried out a deliberate genocidal campaign to kill any Welsh men or boys that they could find. And in the aftermath of all this, under the influence of Harold, The kingdom was partitioned out to multiple smaller kingdoms, and they deliberately ensured that these smaller kingdoms were once again led by members of rival dynasties. So the political, social, and familial worlds of the Welsh were all dealt severe blows at the very same time, and the chance for unity had been effectively crippled. Honestly, What the English had done to the Welsh had a lot in common with what the Normans were now doing to the English. And during that partitioning, Caradog was made into a king. However, he wasn't given all that he was due. Caradog's father had held the entirety of southern Wales. But following the assassination of King Gruffith, the south was broken up, and Caradog was only granted authority in the middle portion of that territory the kingdom of Glowissing. Caradog's cousin, Cadwagin, he was installed in the east as the king of Gwent. And in the western portion of his father's kingdom, the kingdom of Dehibarth, they installed Meredith Apowain, a descendant of old King Thaw and a member of the Dinifauer dynasty, which reaches all the way back to the son of King Rodri the Great. So all at once, Caradog was restored to some of his inheritance but he also saw the majority of his inheritance handed out to others. And some of them were rival dynasties. So it was a real mixed bag, and it was one that probably would have inspired pretty ambivalent feelings towards the English lord who'd been involved in that partitioning. Though that ambivalence probably vanished when Harold seized the Meyer Dreffy at Port Skewit. As you might recall, the English noble had decided he wanted to have a nice holiday in Wales with King Edward, and because he probably wasn't all that interested or concerned with Welsh culture, he plonked down a hunting lodge right on top of the Dreffy, which was one of the political and cultural centers in southeastern Wales. It was also only about a dozen miles from Caradog's stronghold at Caerleon. And you might also remember that King Caradog of Gluwysing had no chill about the English building a vacation home upon his people's meeting grounds. Nor did he apparently have any fear about facing an English army in battle because we're told that shortly after Harold began construction on his hunting lodge, Caradog rode him with his boys, burned it down, and killed all the Englishmen who'd been brought in to man it. And the ferocity of Caradog's attack was so overwhelming that we don't even see any English response to it. Edward just seemed to be happy he wasn't there at the time and decided to go hunting with Tostig instead. And Harold. Well, he pretended the whole thing hadn't happened at all. Then, a few short years later, Harold was dead, and William was now sitting on the throne of England. But even though the Normans were in charge of England, Caradog's English troubles weren't over. Shortly after seizing the English throne, the Normans began raiding their new Welsh neighbors. But their success in this was mixed, partially because one Welsh king Bleden at Apkinfin of Gwyneth, and Powys, had become quite proficient at killing Norman soldiers. So much so that he even joined the English in their rebellions, helping out both Edric the Wild and Edwin of Mercia. And King Blevyn's success was likely why King William decided to install his brutal seneschal, William FitzOsbern, as the ruler of Hereford, which sat right on the border of Wales. And following that appointment, the Ruthless Earl led raiding parties into southeastern Wales to burn and loot communities. And apparently, Fitz Osborne didn't care all that much about the difference between Powys and Gwent and Gluissing. He just hit everyone. So, Caradog's lands were now subject to Norman violence. and It was all because of the actions of his neighbor, King Blethen. And King Bledhen wasn't just anyone. He was the half-brother of King Gruffith of Wales, the guy who had killed Caradog's father. So no one would fault Caradog if he was furious or even downright hostile to Blethen after what he had done, or even after what his half-brother had done. But that doesn't seem to have been the case. It's not clear why. Maybe it was interpersonal. Maybe it was political. Maybe it was just because Caradog also had a grudge with the English. But whatever it was, Caradog was friendly towards Blethen, And so, as the Normans attacked Wales in revenge for Blethen's campaigns, stout defenses were being made all along the border. The fighting was fierce, and casualties were sustained. And Orderic tells us that in the course of all the fighting, Fitz Osbern defeated someone named Cadogan, who was likely Caradog's cousin, King Cadwagan of Gwent as well as two figures named Meredith and Rhys, who were likely King Meredith Wayne of Dehybarth and his brother, Rhys Wayne, Which means that the two men who'd been granted portions of the kingdom of Caradog's father had now lost to Fitzosborne. And in the case of King Meredith, well, he had enough of the fighting, and we soon see him as the proud owner of some new English lands. And in return for this new real estate, we discover that his kingdom of Dehybarth would no longer be hostile to the Norman advances. And that, it seems, didn't sit well with King Caradog. And you might have noticed that Caradog's name was absent from Ordric's list of figures who were defeated by Fitz Osborne. And it wasn't long before Fitz Osborne decided to cross the channel with his boys and go find some glory in that Flemish civil war. And instead, you know, found his grave. And when that happened, an opportunity presented itself because suddenly Caradog didn't have to worry about King Meredith's new Norman buddy at Hereford. It was the perfect time to get rid of a collaborator and also get some of his lands back. So Caradog attacked Highbarth, and in the battle, he killed King Meredith the title of king of Dehybarth, then passed to Meredith's brother, Rhys. Or at least it should have. But Caradog decided that given how things had been going in the Southeast, the kingdom would be better in his hands. And besides, this had been his father's kingdom in the first place, so it really should have been his anyways. So Caradog nabbed it. However, Rhys was still out there and he still had supporters. And so, in 1072, it really was an open question as to who was really the king of Dehybarth. But Caradog didn't let that slow him down one bit, and he turned his attention to the other piece of his father's kingdom Gwent, which was ruled over by Kedwagon. And while Kedwagon was family, he was also distant family. He was just a second cousin hardly enough to justify allowing his father's lands to be split up. And so, not long after defeating Meredith, King Caradog attacked and defeated Cadwagin and seized Gwent. Meanwhile, King Blethen still had the attention of the Normans, and he particularly caught the eye of Hugh Lupus, who was now holding Chester thanks to the previous earl getting captured in that Flemish civil war. And Hugh decided that he wanted this Blevin problem solved, so he put his commander, Robert, on the task. Robert immediately invaded North Wales, and he captured a huge chunk of land. And at Rythlin, he plonked down a Mottenbailey castle, which he used to launch operations to try and capture or kill King Blevin. And he wasn't the only one with murder on his mind. The slaying King Meredith's brother, Resappa Wayne, wanted to bring down Blevin as well. As for why, well, it's hard to say. Blevin wasn't the one who killed his brother. That was Caradog. So why he was targeting Blevin? maybe it was dynastic? I mean, after all, Rhys was from an old dynasty that stretched all the way back to Rodri the Great. And Blevin's dynasty, through Gruffydd, had kind of jumped the line. And Gruffith had made a lot of enemies in the process. I mean, he killed a bunch of people. So maybe that grudge stretched out into Blethen. It could also be that Bledon and Caradog seemed to get on pretty well. And Reese was struggling with Caradog over the throne of Dehybarth. And in a fight like that, would you really want your enemy to be allied with a king like Bledon? That seems like a recipe for disaster. So maybe that was it. Maybe he was trying to make friends with the Normans. Whatever it was, though, Rhys wanted Bleding gone, and unlike the Norman knights, he was patient, and he knew that in Wales, the best way to bring down a warlike king wasn't to come at him head-on. The Welsh way of war focused on hit-and-run strikes, and ambushes, and raids. In short, the Welsh valued a bit of planning, and very much believed in the element of surprise. And Rhys knew a group of lords who had quite a bit of experience in this kind of thing. The lords of Istrad-Tewi. And so he is meeting in secret with them and conspiring to get the job done. And that brings us up to date with what was going on with King Caradog and his neighbor to the north, King Blethen, And it should also give you a sense of what's going on in Wales in general. The chance for unity, such as it was was gone. And in the aftermath of all the bloodshed and murder, the dynasties began to struggle against each other for dominance. And Wales had exploded into a series of battles and assassinations, and nobody seemed willing or able to stem the madness. And as you no doubt noticed, Caradog's story and the Welsh story intersects with the story that we've been telling about the Norman conquest of England. And you can see how events occurring on both sides of the border were influencing each other. But unfortunately, it's also a story that's poorly recorded, so we can only see the shadows of it. And I can't go into the level of detail that we can get in areas where the Normans and their personal biographers were stationed. But speaking of those Normans, we've now hit 1073. And that means that William hasn't massacred anyone in at least six months. So he was probably going through some sort of withdrawal. I mean, he'd nearly got a fix up in Scotland, but that damn King Malcolm had dodged him and then forced him to resolve the conflict through talking. Ugh. Though, to be fair, the trip wasn't a complete waste. Simeon tells us that on the way back from Scotland, William had a chance to dabble in a little hobby of his. You might recall that following the shipwreck in France, William had unearthed the saintly corpse and then paraded it around for a while. Well, apparently, on his way back from Scotland, he was at it again. We're told that William stopped by Durham to see the tomb of St. Cuthbert, who was taking a break from his lengthy postmortem walkabout. And when William heard of Cuthbert's sanctity, he called bullshit on it. William's contention was that if these English really thought Cuthbert was saintly, then they should have no problem opening his tomb up and proving it. And it probably wasn't missed by the monks that this guy was accompanied by a chivalric army who had been mustered with the expectation that they were going to loot and murder their way through Scotland, but instead just spent God knows how long sitting on their hands while the boss took a meeting. And so, like their boss, they were probably itching for an excuse to do some violence. So, reluctantly, but also wisely, the English monks complied and opened the tomb and let the Pope's chosen guy poke and prod a holy corpse. And after he was done with his playdate, the king went to a feast. But not even halfway through the festivities, William started to shake and sweat. He grew pale, and it soon became apparent he was suffering from a terrible fever, and he was immediately rushed away from the feast. And this is why you always wash your hands after fumbling about with one of England's most famous zombie priests. Now, whether this really happened or whether Simeon was just spicing up his account is a subject of debate. But what's not up for debate is that during this same period, William granted Waltham, Harold's old abbey and the alleged place of his burial, to the conquesting bishop, Walcher. And the abbey was apparently now to be used as a kind of vacation residence. You know, during those periods when Walcher wasn't busy governing over Durham, which he had acquired due to it becoming vacant back when William and his boys killed damn near everyone during the Harrying of the North. And this situation and the dichotomy it presents is somewhat a theme here. William doesn't seem to have been particularly pious, or even all that interested in religion. And if he was interested in religion, it was probably that true detective kind of religion. This guy seemed to like the creepy parts. Or, if we're generous... He liked the supernatural stuff, things that conveyed magical power, relics, bodies, sacred banners, that kind of thing. However, now that he was king of England, he was up to his neck in French monks who wanted ecclesiastical lands and titles in England. So he was spending an increasing amount of his time handling church matters. And they were the church matters that dealt with reading and writing and debating. And you can only imagine how a gothy horse bro would feel about that. But he was king and they were in his court. So he had to handle it. Now, the easiest way to deal with these pressures was through the monasteries. England had a long history of monastic independence, which, to be honest, really had mixed success. Sometimes you had a flourishing of intellectual and artistic development. Bede, for example, came out of the English monastic tradition. So did Alcuin. Other times, though, you had monasteries where there were monks who couldn't tell you the Ten Commandments if their lives depended on it because they were instead spending their time moving from one drunken orgy to another. And remember, this is not a joke or an embellishment on my part. The records actually report this. So English holy life was a real mixed bag, especially in the monasteries. And as such, the monasteries, which were often led by old English abbots, were a natural target for these ambitious young Norman monks. And as you might imagine, these new monks who were looking for quick advancement declared that the pre-existing abbots and their brethren were subpar in every way and well past the need for replacement. And Archbishop Lanfranc, being Lanfranc, wasn't exactly going to defend the English abbots. So sure enough, suddenly, accusations were flying, and William was beset with demands for reappointments that he would have to deal with. And he really did have to deal with it here, because the alternative was to let the Pope handle it. And William, well, he wasn't about to let that happen. So... He was hard at work, and appointments began to be made. And in that process, a sort of cultural and personality filter was formed. You see, not all monks and monastic traditions are made equally. And on the continent, there were some monastic communities that were far more sympathetic to the local traditions of the English. There were also monastic communities that were less aligned with the conquest itself. I mean, some monks like the monks who followed St. Hugh of Cluny, flatly refused to be involved in William's conquest at all. And this refusal was pretty noble, given all the self-serving behavior that was going on at the time. But it was also a double-edged sword for those who were looking to preserve any semblance of reason or peace. Because on the one hand, the monks of Cluny were denying William additional boots on the ground for a campaign that they didn't support. And that's laudable. But on the other hand, their refusal guaranteed that there would be no moderating voices within the incoming monastic community. It's a tough situation, and it's something that we still struggle with today. I mean, if you find yourself positioned under a malicious or corrupt leader, is it better to resign in protest? Or is it better to continue to work from within and prevent someone taking your position who would only further the damage of this horrible leader? I don't know what the right answer is, but in this instance, the Cluniac monks chose their path. And as such, the English monasteries faced a merciless bureaucratic firing squad where English monks were systematically removed or barred from promotion and were replaced by continental monks who were likely to come from the most avaricious and aggressive traditions in the region. And while some of the incoming French monks just came in and did their jobs well, we also saw the appointment of figures like Abbot Turold, who was marching around with his own personal army, cracking local skulls. And later on, we'll see Abbot Thurstan of Caen, who didn't like how the holy men of Glastonbury sang in Gregorian Plainsong, and so he brought in troops and killed and maimed the monks until they started chanting in a civilized manner. Like the monks of Facamp. So, holy life on the island was a slow rolling horror. But honestly, the monasteries were just small potatoes. What the incoming clergy really wanted were the dioceses, and not the smaller ones, some of which were actually available. They wanted the big ones, which weren't technically available. But, the clergy were quite insistent that William should fix that. And with the help of the Pope and later Lanfranc, he did. And once these guys got into their new positions, they began appointing officials to their cathedrals and other offices. And as these appointments were made, the lesser officials went out into the diocese and began splitting up their stations and creating new subdivisions, territorial archdeaconries, which were then in turn carved up into rural deaconries. And so what you're looking at is the installation of a whole new hierarchy of a parallel nobility that is being installed in England. And all of them were stocked with French officials and French churchmen. And pretty soon the English diocese began to look more like the French diocese that the incoming clergy were used to. And here's the thing with that. William had long experience with the Norman clergy, and that experience had been difficult right from the start because clergy are just people. And William, well, he didn't really do people. So much like the Knights, William regularly found himself facing a veritable army of reluctant clergy that he needed to prod into action. And as we've learned, William's favorite method of inspiration was bribery. And so here we are in England with a brand new bureaucracy of French-speaking nerds, all of whom were looking to capitalize on this newly acquired kingdom. And while William had given them land, and he'd also given them the big-ticket diocese that they'd been seeking, they weren't just looking for land. They also wanted power. They wanted control. Real, concrete, temporal control and so they began to push to acquire judicial and administrative powers and William probably wishing he just stayed in Durham with that corpse found himself signing a series of writs granting them powers that matched what they had in Normandy and while these powers would have been familiar for the clergy they were brand new for the English These bishops were now authorized to do things like try cases in their own courts, according to canon law, you know, so long as the cases at least touched upon ecclesiastical matters. And this was a sharp contrast to the English method, where these types of matters were heard at the local shire court. And so authority flipped from the secular office to the religious office, and to underline that change... Secular authorities were instructed to assist the religious authorities as much as possible. And as for the flock that these religious authorities were supposed to be tending, well, for the most part, they were baffled and irritated. Everything for them had changed. But the only people who understood how this new system worked were the French guys. And the French guys mostly couldn't speak English. Making matters worse, much like the local monasteries, English bishoprics had their own local ways of doing things. They had their own local saints, their own local observances and traditions. And these were things that went back generations. So it's not just something that they believed in. They were also events that marked the course of their lives and gave them a connection to their past. These were things that their grandparents did and their great-grandparents did. But for many of the incoming clergy... All of this stuff, all of their rituals and celebrations and saints, well, it was far too different from what they were used to back home in France. Far too weird and far too English. And so these local observances and traditions, they were largely discarded and they were replaced with Norman-approved rites and rituals. Those local saints, venerated by the English for generations, They were openly derided and tossed aside. And one of the most unique and cherished English religious traditions met its end here too. The tradition of learning and speaking religion through common vernacular English. The Normans despised this practice, and the new masters crushed it in every corner it was found. What couldn't be done in proper Latin was papered over in French. In a few short years, the English language all but disappeared from the Holy Halls of England. And the result of this was that English commoners weren't just losing their access to justice, they were also losing their access to spirituality. That part of their life that spoke to a higher purpose, to enduring suffering, to leading a moral life. All of those rituals and beliefs and celebrations, they were gone. And what remained were now carried out in a language they didn't understand and were subject to religious dictates handed down by monks who didn't share their culture. Now, to be fair, you can interpret all of this as a sign that William actually had a deep religious desire for reform in the English church and that he wanted to create a uniform understanding that was in line with what was going on on the continent. And you could say that maybe these reforms were simply carried out in a haphazard fashion due to him receiving bad advice and having continental prejudices. That is a possible interpretation. And this was a time of major reform and change within the church. It's a period characterized by radical views and even more radical voices coming to the forefront. However, given everything that we've seen from William, and also what we will see from him going forward, I genuinely find it difficult to imagine that he was all that concerned about reformation. I suspect that his actions here, like his actions on the battlefield and in court, were more about power and political expediency. I mean, when he needed church officials, he would keep them close and make them happy. And when he didn't need them, he would raid their churches and their monasteries. And it seems that right now, he needed them. So he is making them happy. I really doubt that William was being driven here by reformist beliefs. And I should also point out that Goskelin of Sambertine, who was a Flemish monk who had spent many years traveling among the English monasteries prior to the conquest, wrote about how most of these new Norman religious leaders were ignorant and intolerable barbarians. So even continental churchmen were not pleased with the new Norman clergy that were coming to England. Now, some apologists for this behavior will point out that in the 12th century, the English monastic communities went through a renewed flourishing of thought, a sort of mini-Renaissance. And they'll point to this, and they'll say that it's evidence that the English church was in desperate need of reform. And so the hostile Norman takeover was ultimately a good thing through ends-means analysis. However, it should be noted that the few English monastic communities who managed to avoid Norman interference also went through a renaissance during that period, which suggests that whatever caused this flourishing of thought wasn't the Normans, at least not directly. Moreover, even if this was done with the intention to spiritually renew the English, and I doubt it was, The way it was carried out was clearly disastrous for the English living through it. And for those of you who know a little about English history going forward, you might have noticed that this was a significant move in the chess game between the crown and the church, which will continue to be played all the way through to Henry VIII and beyond. The church had been an important institution in Anglo-Saxon England, and it had wielded substantial power but it had always done so in a way that was woven tightly together with the power of the English crown. But now look at what William had done. When he agreed to the demands of the new colonizing clergy, and he allowed them to remake the English church in Normandy's image, the separation between the two institutions deepened. The church and the crown still cooperated, but as Stenton notes, this separation Resulted in a change of status for the clergy that, quote, brought them more closely than before into the ranks of the baronage, end quote. And this was a change that would prove incredibly difficult to reverse. William just set into motion a political Cold War that will rage under the feet of the English crown for centuries. But right now, that was all on paper. And for a horse, bro, it must have just been impossibly boring, like a lease signing on steroids that lasts for months. And in the end, you're not even getting to move into a new apartment. Instead, you've just got a bunch of guys asking you to co-sign another thing. I'm pretty sure this wasn't what William imagined being a king would be like. And all this time in the office wasn't doing his waistline any favors either. So boo to this. Boo, to this whole damn thing. But, as luck would have it, he was getting word that things across the channel had been going a little wonky recently. And wonky in exactly the kind of way that would allow William to get on a horse and hit someone with a sword. Now, this whole thing here is a bit involved, but basically, Maine had been a problem for the Normans for a while. And the main problem was that the Normans wanted to control Maine, and not everyone in Maine was on board with that. And several years ago, they rebelled. And even though William sent his son, Robert Kurthos, to handle it, the people of Maine were successful, and they turfed their Norman overlords out of power. Unfortunately for them, the people Maine put in power were continental chivalric nobles. And so they immediately started doing continental chivalric stuff. The new count, well, he soon lost interest in the job and apparently lost all his money. So he abandoned Lamons and his family and went to Liguria instead. His son Hugh tried to rule in his stead alongside another noble named Gersendis. And then his mom started sleeping with Gersendis. And that combination of new relationship energy and the likely ensuing drama seems to have really spilled out into their workplace. And pretty soon, the people of Le Mans decided this was all way too cringe, and they kicked him out of the city. However, the trio soon made a comeback, crushed the citizens' revolt, and regained control of Le Mans so they can continue their messy soap opera. And then in 1072, the citizenry, still annoyed by these three, decided to try and kick them out again. And this time, they got serious, and they invited Count Folk IV of Anjou to join in. And presumably, the deal here was something along the lines of, defeat the weird family in charge, and you could be our new leader. And honestly, they must have been feeling pretty desperate here, because Folk was a whole thing. Fulk was the kind of leader who would have fit in really well in Normandy. His nickname actually translates to the rude or the quarreler, and I'm guessing it was kind of both. This was a guy who rebelled against his older brother repeatedly, captured him twice, and on that second time, he imprisoned him and then just let nature take its course so he could become the new count. But for the people of Le Mans, apparently having that guy in charge was better than the chaos of the past few years. And then, across the channel, William caught wind of this main mess. Unfortunately, our records are poor, so we don't know if he was invited to take part, or if he was just concerned that Anjou had a chance to expand their influence in France. I mean, maybe he was just bored with all the work of governance and wanted a chance to clobber someone on the battlefield, We're not told, but whatever it was, in late 1072 or early 1073, William was gathering yet another invasion force. He was going to Maine. And by spring of 1073, he and his army landed back on the shores of the continent. And Gaimar actually claims that Harroword was with him, though as we discussed earlier, that's pretty controversial. But regardless, William was in Maine with a large army of English and Norman soldiers, all of whom were eager to attend the medieval version of Woodstock 99. And Count Folk took one look at this and pretty much immediately withdrew. We don't know why, but it is possible that he decided it wasn't worth getting into a direct confrontation with William. At least not yet. And that left William with a free hand in Maine. And so he was able to do what he loved to do. He sieged castle after castle until he finally found himself outside Le Mans. Who surrendered within a single day. That ended quickly, like really quickly. And according to the sources, it had been ridiculously easy, which was probably gratifying, but also a little disappointing. Even worse. William was probably starting to feel his age. When he'd begun his conquest of England, he was joined by his peers, as close to friends as this guy probably had. But now, many of them were dead, and his army was now stocked with his friend's sons, knights like the youthful Robert de Bellamy. He was no longer the young upstart. He was the elder, knighting the young upstarts. That's a tough reality to face. And as salt in the wound, rather than partying all night with the boys, William found himself having to handle matters of state. Specifically, he found himself having to deal with church matters because Archbishop John of Rouen needed to have a word. You see, it turned out that the archbishop had taken a trip to San Owen Abbey. And while there, well, he got into a brawl with the local monks. It's not clear precisely what started it, but I should point out that John was known for having an abrasive attitude and radical views, and at least one source actually puts the blame squarely at his feet. Don't forget, this was the same guy who inspired a bunch of clergy to stone him and drive him out of the Synod. And it seems that the monks of San Iwen had a similar reaction to the guy. And actually, they went a step further, After John fled the scene, the monks actually replaced him with Abbot Robert of Saint-Martin, which is a baller move if I'm being honest. I mean, can you imagine if a bunch of Tesla engineers just threw rocks at Elon Musk until he ran away, then selected a new CEO and went about business as normal? Amazing. Unfortunately, Archbishop John wasn't pleased with being replaced, so he went and tattled to William which meant that Bill was now going to have to deal with even more church stuff. But, at least this time, it was kind of fun. I mean, what horse bro doesn't love a good brawl? So, he called forth the main ringleaders of this brawl. And it turned out to be four monks. He then judged them and ordered them to be split up and put into four different abbeys. The whole thing feels like something that might have happened in third grade, honestly. But at the same time, it was a surprisingly straightforward bit of governance. Until, of course, it wasn't. Because a bit later, presumably once William had actually spent some time getting to know Archbishop John, he reversed his decision at a synod. And he declared that Archbishop John was definitely the one responsible for that brawl. And he fined him. And hilariously, we know about this story because Archbishop John then handled it all with his characteristic grace and decorum by immediately bitching and moaning to Lanfranc in a whole series of letters. The guy is kind of amazing. And that's not the only thing that was going on with Reformist priests during this period. Because on April 21st of 1073, Pope Alexander II died. And soon thereafter, Hildebrand was named as his successor, becoming Pope Gregory VII. And you'll remember that Hildebrand, now Gregory, was instrumental in the conquest of England. He was the one who'd helped William acquire Alexander's support and the papal banner. And that conquest fit within Gregory's vision for the church. And actually, they were so committed to this project that they even absolved William and his army of the sins that they committed during the conquest. The church had been working hand-in-glove with Normandy, and they were doing it on the assumption that their support for Norman dominance would in turn result in Norman support for papal dominance. And in the letters that were exchanged at this time between William and Gregory, with William congratulating Gregory for his appointment— you can see that the two men expected to have a friendly and collaborative relationship. But if you take a closer look at the situation between the two men, you can see storms on the horizon. The ultimate goal of Gregory and his faction was to fashion a world where popes held a position that was higher than kings and emperors, a continental theocracy. They wanted the church to be the ultimate authority. And it was the new Pope Gregory's contention that this had been the plan for the conquest right from the start. That William could be king of England under the Pope. But can you imagine William ever accepting overlordship from anyone? Hell no. And when you look at the correspondence between the two institutions, you see that while the relationship between William and the church was ostensibly gracious— it is also clearly the relationship of a pretender who is exploiting his patron. But what else was the church going to do? William was militarily powerful, and the church was the church. And even though Hildebrand was now serving as Pope Gregory VII, that power imbalance remained. And actually, it was heightened by the overall state of the papacy in the 11th century. Gregory himself writes to William about how the church had lost its way so badly that it was basically out to sea. He openly laments how the institution was rocked by storms caused by hypocrites and tossed into traps laid by heretics. And when you look at the Pope's letter to Queen Matilda, you can see that he might have had concerns with William's faith because Gregory urges the queen to assist her husband and emphasizes that he would benefit from a religious wife. You see, this new pope needed allies, especially right now. But he must have begun to realize what kind of monster he'd unleashed and how unlikely it was that William was going to be the kind of king he needed him to be. Back to England. By 1074, the whole business in Maine had been settled, and Archbishop John's messiness was also handled, at least as much as it could be. And so, William was back in England. But he wasn't the only one crossing the Channel to return to Britain in 1074. Edgar the Atheling had recently returned from Flanders, and he had rejoined the court of King Malcolm of Scotland and his sister, Queen Margaret, on July 8th. And I assume he'd been gathering allies while in Flanders, as Count Robert of Flanders was an enemy of William's. And it appears he'd been quite successful because he soon got a letter from King Philip of France, who just happened to be a friend of Count Robert's and an enemy of King William's. And Philip offered Edgar a castle at Montreux. And it was a castle that just happened to sit on the border of Normandy and King Philip suggested that they use that castle to harry his enemies. And you know what that means. And it looks like Malcolm and Margaret were thrilled because they immediately supplied Edgar with a ton of treasure, as well as a nice elaborate ceremony to help him launch his voyage to France, into his destiny. And so Edgar sailed to France, not just as the rightful heir to the throne of England, but also as an extraordinarily lucky man. But unfortunately, all of that luck was bad and Edgar was immediately shipwrecked. Some of his men got captured, a lot more died, all the treasure was lost, and Edgar himself only barely managed to make it back to Scotland with his life, where Malcolm and Margaret took one look at him and basically said, whoa, I don't think this is gonna work out, buddy. I think you should go talk to William and apologize. And so, that's what Edgar did, thus ending his miserable rebellion. And William actually accepted the apology and allowed him to reside at court, probably because he didn't want to create a martyr or risk yet another rebellion. And make no mistake about it, while William had weathered years upon years of rebellions, and he had brutally crushed English descent, that threat was still very much front of mind for him. And we know this because on this same year, King Henry IV of Germany reached out to William with an offer that should have been like catnip for him. You see, Henry was embroiled in a civil war, and he wanted William to join in and crack some skulls on the battlefield right alongside him. But William, who could have used a foreign campaign to blow off some steam, turned him down. Why? Well, according to the contemporary chronicler, Bruno of Merceburg, William informed Henry that he couldn't leave England because he feared if he did, he would lose it. Yeah, William couldn't engage in foreign violence because he was worried that he might, yet again, have to deal with his least favorite kind of violence. Violence directed at him from within. And his paranoia was spot on. While the king had been signing all those charters and dealing with title disputes and handling the tantrums of archbishops, well, people have been meeting and plotting and preparing another revolt, and this time, it wouldn't be led by English insurgents. It would come from his own people. Son of a if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcasts at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, or just finance another bottle of NyQuil, you can sign up for membership at com. Thanks for listening.